0: Welcome to Season 2, Episode 9 of Beyond the Zero, I'm your host Ben, joining me today is Patrick McCabe. is a writer. His new novel, Pogue Mahone, is out now through Unbound. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Hi, Ben. Thanks so much for joining me. Do you want to tell me about life in Clonus in Ireland?
1: Well, Clonus is a small form of a market town in the days when there were markets. Um, my time, population rarely rose above 2,000. Um, I suppose it's falling now, but it's uh, it's changing. Uh, as a lot of small towns are changing, and now as uh, people from various corners of the globe um, make their home here, and uh, so I suppose if you were to teleport my parents or their, my grandparents to the Ireland. We live in now, they would at first be bamboozled, I suppose, like everybody from the past in the modern world. But I suppose would see, as they began to acclimatise themselves to the scene around them, that many things have changed, but many things have remained the same. You know, that it's still very family orientated kind of country. And I uh, uh, probably in post-COVID, they would say mm, there seems to be a, a dearth of spontaneity you know, that people are not as comfortable in their own skins or in the company of others, which is a peculiar thing, but that's not uh, unusual to other countries, you know. It's a very strange space to inhabit. But uh, basically, um, it's a small community, and uh, it's about one half mile from the... Irish border on the southern side. Now, to a country like Australia, you think, what, country that small, does it even have a southern side? <laughs> <laughs> but it does. And uh, I guess um, it was close by what we used to call the troubles, but those have all subsided now, thankfully, and uh, affected it to some extent, not as much as perhaps... You might expect, really, though, because life continued on in a kind of sleepy, parochial way most of the time. Um, it's a place that's very dear to my heart. I've all I've never really left it. I mean, I've left it physically, but I've never been too far away from what's going on. A lot of my friends, the ones that remain on Earth, are still here, and uh, you know, it's a it's a deeply uh, felt bond, I suppose.
0: Mm. Has Brexit changed anything in Ireland over the last few years?
1: Oh, well, it has. I mean, it, is, it has affected all sorts of things. I'm no economist or anything, but it's what it's introduced is uncertainty. And nobody likes uncertainty, least of all the markets. And uh, financially, you know, we're back to something like the mid-70s, which, you know, people talking about conserving energy and, you know, getting anxiety, I suppose, is what is introduced and uh, who who knows what how it will play, I don't know. But um I, I wish it had been debated rather more in a more in a more so, sort of civil manner. I think mm-hmm. that I I'm all for people having opposing views, but I think one of the more distressing aspects of the modern world is what well, it's a cliche now to say it is that people of opposing views can't seem to do sit down and talk like civilized human beings, you know, I'm rather used to that. And I remember generations before us being able to do it as well, but Mm. with the um, social media explosion, maybe it's just because it's new. I don't know. But um, anyway, that seems to be the case. And I have nothing really of any value to add to the debate because it's, that's what the elected representatives are for. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We were talking briefly before we started recording about, I guess, the secular, secularization of, of Ireland and Australia as well. But I think that's had a big effect on a country, especially like Ireland, that was so traditionally you know, religious and now seems to have a much more secular outlook on the world. How has that affected your life?
1: Well, I suppose the suddenness of it took me by surprise. I mean, various scandals and so on made it. Probably inevitable, but uh, nonetheless for, you know, since the famine period, which would be 1847, I suppose, the Catholic Church was a very powerful institution. Um, And in terms of social cohesion, I would suggest after the Irish Revolution, very valuable in terms of, uh, you know, Ireland could have ended up a ramshackle post-colonial wasteland if hadn't had a certain amount of order. I had a good civil service, strong Catholic church. Uh, but I suppose people, whether they know it or not, when when a certain thing is out outlived its usefulness, they shed it like a skin. And I suppose in the modern world, they didn't feel the need of it. And uh, on it goes. But socially and culturally and everything, I'm very interested in it. It's the same way as James Joyce was, because mm-hmm. it's still threaded throughout the language. It's... Still got its comforts for for many people, you know. um so it's kind of an ongoing thing, really, you know, but uh, as regards the, the church itself, my view would be very much that of the uh, the great Irish novelist and short story writer John McGahern, who's dead now, but he said he he always viewed it as the weather of his early life. you know, you might mm-hmm. as well take swings at the weather, you know, as, uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's uh, in terms of uh, um, analysis, I think there's been a lot of negativity, but not enough objectivity. I would rather be objective about it and see what what way it lands.
0: Your first novel came out in the mid-'80s. You've consistently put out books since then. Do you want to tell us a bit about your journey into writing and some of the writers that inspired you?
1: Well, I suppose I always viewed writing is essentially an irrational and difficult activity and why anyone would adopt it if they had any choice still puzzles me i mean it's become almost fashionable now to be a writer you know mm. a lot of uh, highly educated university graduates go into writing programs and many of them very good and very productive and but <clears throat> i always knew it was a very difficult way to make a living and that's actually got worse uh, unless you're very successful um the commercial impulse now is what drives everything and, and uh, in a way experimental authors or difficult authors have gone underground but in the same way as they were in the 60s except that there was a an audience there in the avant-garde and so on now i find it if you do anything that's remotely um difficult not the readers now because i'm sure they're out there somewhere i just don't know how to get my hands on them But Mm -hmm. the editors and the gatekeepers, well, they will wrinkle up their nose and say they admire it and everything, but they'll throw it back at you and say they haven't an idea how to sell it, you know, which is very embarrassing, really. I mean, if you're a head of a company and you don't know what to do with it, I don't know what you're doing there. But maybe that the idea of literature, as I understood it, is passé. Um, But in terms of why why I would have done it, um, I suppose I came from a literary household in Ireland, you get a lot of stuff, you know, in British and American newspapers about this backwater, you know, where books were banned and everybody walked around with their head down, you know. But that wasn't my experience at all. Books might be banned, but, you know, didn't have any bother getting them if you wanted them. And that was true of my father and mother. And So my father was a very well read man and uh, he wrote himself. And uh, song and literature would have been. It would have been accepted as, you know, part of the the atmosphere, the, the air that you breathe. People are always singing, you know, just doing their chores, as they do, you know, in all rural societies. You know, ballads come from women weaving on a Scottish island, you know, great, fantastic kind of imagery and ordinary speech. Bob Dylan snared this better than I ever did long ago, and, uh, when nobody was even passing any remarks on Irish balladry he was highlighting things like Lord Randall which became Hard Rain's Gonna Fall you know or many other ballads that he he's quite a thief Dylan he's a real magpie mm-hmm. so when I got into the beats and and the early Dylan and so on the thing I was kind of interested in was style you know how would you because there was a kind of a inferiority complex in Ireland at that time as regards being a rural country, you know, and a lot of the uh, literature that was emanating from um, the cities, it it spoke of a life to which we didn't have access, whether it was Sydney or London or New York, but was deeply attractive. It was a youth culture as the post-war party had really begun. And I found my way into that through flippantly, I suppose I'm saying this, but it's kind of nonetheless through through, through um, English writers like Enid Blyton, Rich Crampton, Crompton, um, all the great English classics and, you know, things like the Dandy Book and Annuals and all of this kind of magic wonder world. And then. People like Brendan Behan. Now, I don't know if you've even heard of Brendan Behan. Yeah, I have. Yeah. Brendan Behan was a a sort of a larger-than-life character, what you might describe as a circus of a man. And there were a few of those around, you know. This tendency, you know, to assume we've all entered some kind of period of enlightenment enlightenment where we drink, you know, expensive coffees. I noticed maybe a tendency which is beginning to recede now as the, (laughs) the global crisis bit, but as if this was the gold standard by which you lived your life. But back in that time, although privation was very much part of the society, there were people who broke this asunder, you know, and didn't know what rules were. And if rules were there, they weren't for them. And Brendan Behan was one of these characters and James Joyce was another one. And there was any amount of them in Ireland, as you would always get. You would get it even in the deep south of America, you know, which is supposed to be bad. But you get crazy moonshiners there, you know. That was always a, a, an attractive kind of counterculture to me. And uh, somehow Brandon Behan, in my mind, got mixed up with the kind of English rhythm and blues boom, as, as Vince by by. The yardbirds and the pretty things and the, all that countercultural underground, which then segued into the progressive underground of the early 70s where the, where the book is set. But in terms of why I got attracted to writing at all or as a means of expression, or um, I suppose, even sustenance was that I used to write essays for a teacher in the local school. This is a primary school now, when I'd be 11. And I discovered the joys of solitude. And uh, this was quite a, a revelation to me. I noticed that I didn't have to lock myself away, but if I absented myself from the common round, you might say, I went into a room, a bedroom, with an ink bottle and a what we used to call then a jotter, which is a lined ring bound notebook and an ink pot. I used to love the scratch of the pen on the paper. And I used to love that you could create beautiful golden cities in which you were the star. This was probably the motivation force that uh, you could rearrange the world in a manner to suit your requirements, as it were. So if you'd gone and disgraced the local football team by letting in a goal or not scoring one, well, you could change the outcome of that by sitting in your bedroom and said, you know, the crowd were roaring as I scooped the cup and so on. But that then became Montezuma, the Prince of the Aztecs, and became, you know, Tugon Pete and all the rest of it. And uh, I started to get praised for these little essays. And the teacher would ask me to read them out in front of the uh, the classroom now. I did notice that people who previously would have liked to hang you by the heels upside down and shake all the money out of your pockets and call you names and maybe threaten to drown you in the river just for, your, just for being alive, Yet if you read these, it gave you some status, shall we say, in the community. And also noticed that they might be afraid that you would put them in one of these essays, and they might, they might not look good. So it kind of gave you a little bit of power. And uh, I started to develop then, um, I suppose, some sense of the necessity of construction. Like the teacher in question said to me, these essays are interesting, but, you know, your imagination is on is very undisciplined. You're putting too much in. And I said, what do you mean I'm putting too much in? Because being a young fellow, I bridled at this. And that was my first lesson. And the importance of listening to good criticism. Um, he said he sat me down and said, Do you know about the exposition the, the development and recapitulation? The answer to which was no, I don't. But he explained it to me and said, You set the story out, you develop it, and then you wind the whole thing up and you can put a coda. And he said, If you want to look at your TV shows that I know you like so much, like The Man from Uncle or um lost in space or any of these 60 series, you will notice that they're broken into three chunks, the beginning, the middle and end, and possibly a coda. And that's so that the viewer can digest the information and it doesn't get cluttered and you don't bamboozle people and frustrate them just because you feel like doing it. It's about discipline. It was probably the best lesson I ever got in construction. So once I listened to that, it started to improve and so on. Later on that I, when I would reflect, I wanted to kind of blend the kind of robustuous Brendan Behan style, joyce and vernacular with all these experiences of the contemporary world as it was at that time, which would have been Irwin Allen presents, which were all those kind of 60s series and, uh, which were now a part of my world. I have to experience something for it to go into the bloodstream to be able to write about it, generally speaking, that's my experience. And, uh, carried on and had a few false starts, had a novel published about 1985. Not very good. Um, Didn't bother republishing it. Um, But it taught me a lot of things, you know, not to be too cautious. I suppose at the beginning of your writing career, you're, um, you are concerned if you've put in, particularly if you're starting a young family or whatever it is you're doing, you know, if you're going to make a living out of this, somebody has to publish it. And maybe you have to learn not to care. And uh, it's not easy when you're a young person, because if you put two years of your life into it, you you are going to be prepared to compromise, maybe, in a way that you mightn't do later on, because you can afford later on not to do it. <laughs> but anyway, how I found the style of, that I was searching for was, when well, my third book, which was called the butcher boy against all the odds found a readership. Now I didn't think it ever would, but it did. And Sometimes publishing and writing is to do with the confluence of a number of unforeseen kind of tendencies or trends. And the butcher boy came along at the right time. I don't think if it was published or was written now, it would even be published or probably not even accepted, but it was then and uh, it got a lot of attention. But the reason it came to be written in the manner, it's very like Pogue Mahone, actually. Um, It's written in a stream of consciousness style, which is not original. I'm not saying it is. It's obviously from Joyce and Dujardin and various other people. But the reason that it was written like that was I threw all caution to the winds. Now, I still had discipline because it was just a long stream of consciousness without any significant building blocks within it it wouldn't stand there would be no scaffolding there but the scaffolding is invisible because of what I'd learned from that teacher long ago when he had told me make sure don't let your imagination dictate you must you must have the structure and it's there it's all there and it holds it up and so I wrote about a thousand pages that never were seen they were thrown away but of course they're not thrown away because they turn up in other, in other works later on but um Anyway, that kind of enabled me to take a, a year or two off on that. I've been a full-time writer since that time. That's about 1991, I suppose.
0: Wow. Okay. That's amazing. With Pogamohone is the first book that I've read by you, but I've been very keen to get my hands on some of your other work and read that too. But I wanted to ask you, is there a particular work that you find you're most proud of? And what basically, what book should I read?
1: from you next? Well, I suppose the writer's view of their work is, is, is very like children, you know. I mean, I really mm. couldn't say, I've got three grandchildren and two daughters. It just would be impossible for me to say, oh, I much prefer Christopher to Leia. <laughs> uh, apart from being an affront to the moral universe, I would get myself in serious trouble.
0: Mm.
1: But uh, no, I suppose. Funny enough, if the word if I were to say I had a favorite book, it probably. No, I honestly can't. The word's stick in my throat. There, <laughs> do you know what I'm going to say to you, Ben? Yeah. What I'm going to say to you is, what you find on the shelves, if you ever do find anything of my shell, um, of my work on, on shelves, if they were all put together on a shelf it's one book the whole thing is one book so if if i may be impertinent i say what is my favorite book all of them yeah it's it's all one
0: i have a theory that my favorite writers have a project and i've heard this from several people um several writers that basically what they do is they have one book They write one book and every book speaks to each other. Every little part of each book is a part of another book. And for me, that is probably the, I I found those writers who write books like that. They are my favorite writers. They're the books that I, uh, are most, I don't know, my most loved books, because I think that when a writer creates a universe around their work, I think it just, it, it creates something. It's, it's just something completely new. And, um, and delving back into that writer's work is just uh, such a treat. So that that's that, what you've said there makes me just want to go back and read all of your work now. Because if Hope Mahone is anything to go by, I yes, I'll be definitely doing that.
1: Well, I hope they speak to you because um, you know I'm not saying the standard is maintained or up and down, but that's, that's the case with, you know, it reflects where you are at a particular time emotionally. And Mm -hmm. I've been writing these books, you know, since really since I was 17. And that's a long time ago. Now it's half a century. So it's very much a, a parabolic kind of journey. It's up, down, it's zigzag. But if you think of them all, lasso them all into one corral, as it were, and look at them all and say, that's close the covers on all those books. And you have one big book. When you see it that way and accept it that way, it'll make sense. Like the collective works of equals one big book. Brilliant. Okay.
0: Well, that is just, uh, yes, I'm going to be doing some shopping in the next few days. So, um,
1: Well, if you can get them. It's not that easy to get them.
0: I will do my Although best. I think
1: a good few of them are still in print in Australia.
0: Okay. Brilliant. All right. We should always talk about Pokemon. Um, it is a fantastic book honestly it's one of the best books I've read this year probably the last few years it's just fantastic came out earlier this year through Unbound the story centers around Dan Fogarty his sister Una and Una lives in a nursing home at the time we meet them she has dementia and Dan ostensibly cares for her um, which we will not talk about too much further but (laughs) the book tells about their story uh, and their life in Hippie London, for the most part, but after they've been exiled from native islands and they kind of, I guess they go on a journey through Hippie London, but also they talk about their childhood. They talk about what's happening now. um, And it really does, I guess it it goes from, you know, the fifties really all the way up to, to present day. But I wanted to ask you, do you want to tell us a little bit more about your two central characters and also a little bit about the setup of the novel.
1: Well, I suppose um, my view of the book is going to be different to the readers. Now, what has kind of, I suppose, interested me, not to say puzzled me a little, is what I would kind of suggest is something of a superficial reading of the novel, mm. which which kind of tends to happen a lot in current criticism or, or discourse in that what happens on the top of the narrative, I suppose you might call it, like Dan Fogarty and his sister, they, if you were to reduce it to its constituent parts, they are Irish immigrants. They go to the major city of its time, was is in London. They end up, predictably enough, kind of um, marginalised. And misunderstood and all, but that's not really what I was interested in getting at. I think that you, you it's a bit like a more unkind reviewer might say. James Joyce's Ulysses, "Why did he ever bother with that pedantic allegory?" You know, because when you really get to the meat of the uh, the prose and the excitement of the minutiae of the of the language and the exchanges. A lot of the Homeric parallels are of no real significance and some of them mm-hmm. are very strained. you know, and sometimes I even look at Pokemon and say, why did you bother putting all that story in? Because, you know, it's when you get to the underground, the subterranean consciousness and you realize, are you ask yourself just a second now, who is telling this story? Mm-hmm. And nobody has really remarked on this, not that it bothers me one way or another. But there's someone at the heart of this story who's not telling the truth. Now, we all know that it's an unreliable unreliable narrator. There's nothing new about that. But there's a consistent refrain through this weaving and winding and subterranean kind of alluvial sludge of a narrator that something terrible is at the heart of this. Mm. And really what I was attempting to do was to to write in the Irish, to the the, the human experience through a Gaelic or ancient prism as we kind of try to make metaphysical sense of who is in charge. Now we assume, you know, that's the omniscient God or the omniscient narrator is benign, but we have no guarantee of that. So it, it mm-hmm. kind of, it harkens back as much to paradise lost by John Milton as anything else. Now I'm not saying it's anything in the same class as paradise lost, but it's, it's occupying the same territory in that, you know, Satan waves his fist at God. Who gives you the right to damn me? Mm. Now, there are a lot of colonial things between Ireland and England that are included in this narrative. But basically, the correspondence between this and any other work, as well as part of it, would be Bob Dylan's Desolation Row, in that, as it found its form, it it became clear to me that it, it it was beginning to sing when it snatched lines from Elliot's Wasteland or Bob Dylan's Desolation Row. What began to fade and recede promptly in my mind was any real concern with what was happening sociologically at that time in Britain. It had to be included all right, but it wasn't my major theme. And uh, I had no real concern of commenting sociologically on the condition of the Irish in Britain. It was a much, much, much bigger and darker story than that. And uh, ultimately, I'm glad you commented on the climax because very few have. And I, as I was writing it, I thought, how the hell is this nightmare going to end? Mm. Is it going to end majestically or is it going to end mischievously or what? And I didn't know. And uh, I was very pleased when it found its proper ending, which the only ending it could be, and it's not benign. No. So really, it's some kind of a nocturnal metaphysical fable. Mm. That's what it is.
0: It has this, like, sinister edge to it that you're just kind of waiting for, and you don't know when that shoe is going to drop. You really don't. But it's funny because it, it really weaves its way through. The only book that I could think of that it kind of reminded me of, and I know that there, there's been comparisons to, to a lot of other books, I think, that I've read, you know, in terms of this stuff, but I think they are superficial, like you said. But I think the there's a certain menace hiding in the background. And there's a book by Norman Mailer called Castle in the Forest, and, um, and it's also got a kind of a, a narrator who is terribly unreliable but also extremely sinister in what's happening but um that's probably one of the few books I can relate this book to because it is it's completely original like uh it is totally original but that sinister edge to it that you have working through it and that climax that you work up to it just I don't know when I got to it I had to put the book down and then pick it up again and finish it because like it did take me a little while to digest what had happened but it is well, it had the same it.
1: effect on me, and I was writing it um, yeah. because I didn't expect it. Mm. which is always a good sign, mind you.
0: yeah,
1: it really is. and um it means that uh, the key that you struck, the the register you're in is still is still singing mm. and um, you haven't slipped out of the uh, the tombra. and uh, I should really say that the um the rhythm of the book, you wouldn't probably be familiar with the word bowron or "boron," no. what it is, is a, a a hand drum made from goat skin, which gives you the rhythm of a lot of Irish traditional music. It can be robustuous, it can be sinister, but it it uh, it moves in six eight time. A lot of the boom 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 boom, boom. It can be like a war drum, but that's the beat of the book. And it never, it never really deviates from that. I don't expect people to know what a boron or a boron is. Many will, mm. I'm sure, but I should never presume that. I'm only saying that because that's got it's germane to what you asked me. You know, mm. how did it come to write this thing? And for me, it's so important that the rhythm that you get is the right one, because a single half beat off can ruin the whole book, and I'll abandon mm. it. Yeah.
0: One of the things about this book that we were talking about before, about the, I guess, the theoretical difficulty of this book and picking it up is that it's a big book and it's in verse. And it's, I think that for some people reading that description or listening to that description, they might think that that is going to make this book difficult. I don't think it does. I think it actually enhances the reading experience by a long way. But one of the things that I found reading this book was some of the videos that you made and also the audio book as well. Hearing hearing it out loud makes this book work brilliantly. And I think it's a kind of book where even if you are reading it to yourself on the couch, you have to think about this book in, you know, in an out loud kind of context. But um do you want to tell us about writing the book in that style and that beat, I guess, that you were talking about as well?
1: Well, it's perhaps not, I would like to think it's original, certainly, but perhaps not as startlingly original as other people might like to think, because it is in a kind of a tradition, you know, like um, a lot of old Irish folk tales of the 19th century and uh, perhaps the, the dramatist Dion Busico, they, they kind of wrote in an almost, what what was called at the time, Um, Hiberno English Now for an Australian listener really all that means is um, the Irish having lost their language began to speak English in a different way to the indigenous peoples of England, Scotland or Wales and it had had a particular rhythm to it and often lent itself to you know accusations of kind of parody or near idiocy at times but a lot of the, the melodramas that I would have been familiar with, the Colleen Bonn and the Chakron and various other things that were very popular in Ireland and England in the 19th century, they gave rise to a lot of literature in the early part of the 20th century, some of it good, some of it bad, but very much in this tradition of Hiberno-English. And there were many comic books that I read as a boy with which I was kind of besotted because... This Hiberno-English, it was, even though Ireland is a very small country, linguistically, there are um, significant, certainly to to the trained ear, difference. Like if if you're in the north of Ireland, if you're in Belfast, the vernacular is very spiky, sharp, almost ill-tempered and impatient. Whereas in the southern part, like the mountains of Kerry and Limerick and very... It flows more like honey, as it were. And I was kind of in the middle because I grew up on the border. And it wasn't a question of which you liked better or what you didn't. The, what, what was interesting to me was the way that the stories were being told. And uh, for the purposes of this, I immersed myself in all these old magazines and Hiberno English books so that I would get that alluvial kind of strange river of honey but dark, Flow of the language and along with the beat of this hand drum that I'm talking about, that's what then gave it the um, the style which emerged. Which, as I say, is in that tradition. It's it's original and modern, original perhaps, but has its um, roots or its um, genesis in the language of the nineteenth century.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I would love for you to do and for our listeners is if you would be able to read a piece of your beautiful novel out loud for us, because I think that hearing it from you uh, would be amazing. Um, I think it is something that out loud, I've heard you read it out loud before, and it's just, it's something else.
1: I'm going to read for you the, the interview with uh, the young hippie called the King of Cavan, Macaulay Breffney O'Rourke, being interviewed in the police station. And not so very long after that, there came the pending interview with the King of Cavan, Macaulay Brefney O'Rourke, who had long since been under suspicion because of his friendship with blind old Frank. Uh, Frank who had been kicked out of training college along with him acid fried blind owl blissfully wandering in his own private acid world behind those black thick framed spectacles. And Macaulay Brefney O'Rourke too. And this, the police station, is where it had all led. As the quivering King of Cavan began muttering to himself, already in his own mind shrinking hopelessly in size from six foot two to five foot nothing asking himself repeatedly why did i ever stop in that place why did i ever come to 45 brondesbury road why did i ever stop in that squat as he sat behind the table. And the sergeant walked around. Yes, the sergeant of police, a different officer this time, different officer, different station. So you're telling me, he said, that your name is the King, that that's what you're known as by your friends and associates. That's right, officer. That's the deal. And that's it? Just King Man. Macaulay, breath, worked work, King of Cavan. But they weren't convincing. Either his charm or braggadocio, that is not anymore. I want you to look at a couple of photos. Do you think you could maybe do that for me? or are you already too much out of your head easy man hey officer take easy jesus and so commenced the paddington inquisition very well then i hope you're comfortable are you comfortable yeah i am but don't worry about that officer because all you're going to get out of me is the truth so you can take it easy and relax my brother Cause i got no problem with anyone Only my fellow man with a fuzz or not no no extra grand with society. just answer the questions if you would mind if you please i'm sorry officer i beg your pardon so describe to me the hovel that you live in if you would let's start from the top it's nothing man it's just a place to us as homes love it's love, man. It's a den. A den? I see, love. I see. Your neighbors have supplied us with valuable information regarding the type of behavior which one might expect to encounter in this place you call Number 45 Gardens. This, Brondesbury Gardens, that you call the squat. Ha <laughs> ha, laughed the king. I know who you mean. Yeah, when you say our neighbors, those two freaks that live next door, the Pokey man. <laughs> As Troy likes to call him. But they got no damn business spreading lies and rumors about us. Harassing us, officers. You think this is a proper way to live? Then at this point, the photos appeared. An old, worn blanket hanging in front of the window. The grave in the garden where they'd buried Mr. Jones, the deranged Airedale. To whom someone had heartbreakingly administered a tab of acid. In the garden, said the officer. The garden, my friend. That's the place for one of God's creatures, wouldn't you say? Those innocent animals with whom you say we share the planet? That was a bad vibe, officer. I don't know, a bad sus, and I'd love to know who did it. Give the little dog a tap of us, and please help me. Macaulay
0: breath a over. very softly began to weep. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Thank you for reading that. You must have had a, an amazing time doing the audio of this.
1: Well, it was a long, a long haul. You know, I did the whole book; I didn't abridge it. Mm. But it was good to do it. Now, I just don't know how you got a get an audio book in between people's ears. I just don't know how that's done, or how you because I haven't seen anything about it. Um, mm. Maybe people are listening to it, but uh, as you say, said, be it'd be helpful if they did because um, it might unlock the thing. I don't know.
0: Look, I, I honestly think this is the kind of book where if people get past the first couple of pages and people accept the fact that the book is in a verse kind of format, I, I don't know anybody, like anybody who's into serious literature today, like should be reading this kind of work. Because I, I think it is just, it's got everything for me. It honestly, like there's nothing about this book that I think is, is it's not, it's not a hard book to read. It's not like, it doesn't put you off, but I think the, you know, the, I guess the only thing is to get this book into people's hands, because I think once you start this book, like I, there's a, I don't know if you've read Mason and Dixon by Thomas Pynchon, but I feel like that's the kind of book that's written in in a particular vernacular. Once you get used to it, it is one of the best books you'll ever read. And I feel like this is kind of the same thing where, once you get used to the vernacular you use and the and the prose style you use, it is brilliant because it, it pays off in a narrative sense. It pays off in, in so many different ways. So I honestly, like, I just wish people would go out and get this book.
1: Well, I'm glad you said it paid off because I had no interest in writing a free-form scat jazz kind of thing mm. that just ended up in the air. I wanted to bring all those elements, like I'm a big fan of thrillers, you know, mm. I'm a pulp freak. And I, did, I wanted to bring all those things that i learned over the years together in one thing, you know, so if they're all there and uh, you felt a pit off, well, that's very reassuring and heartening for me. But uh, mm. the the problem seems to be, if there is a problem, I mean, I'm very happy this book has been cared for beautifully by Unbound, and, you know, they they really have, John Mitchinson himself more or less designed the book and we mm. discussed it like to be a kind of a, an early 70s um sort of arts lab you know yeah a potato print kind of thing do it yourself thing and uh, <clears throat> you know so uh, on that front there's absolutely nothing more that one could have wanted mm. but is getting it into people's hands is is, uh, is maybe more difficult now than it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago
0: yeah i think like honestly i think that the the rise of social media and the rise of um things like amazon where people can get everything at their fingertips in a second means that books don't like a lot of books just don't get a half-life they don't get that time on the shelf they don't get the time in papers they they kind of have this 15 minutes of fame if they're lucky and then they disappear so yeah there's so much content that's
1: bound to affect isn't it you know the future i mean how could you know say we're moderating a creative writing workshop and as Mm. it often happens young people ask me about what, what it's like as a full-time author, you know, hoping that you'll say it's magnificent, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's a great way to live your life. And you can see their eyes sparkling with ambition and excitement. It'd be very, very difficult for me to say, by all means, do it because Mm -hmm. it seems to be, you know, this 15 minutes, if you even get that, you know, um, it's very elusive. Yeah. Um, commercially, the thing is so driven by uh, by uh, algorithms and you know focus groups almost yeah. that you couldn't guarantee them that beyond their first book they would they would be, they would have a living.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think unless you're someone like Stephen King and you have all your work adapted and you know you're making a massive amount of money off your work, I reckon there's, there's not a like I don't think there's the amount of authors out there that can work full-time as as writers like all the basically the majority of writers I speak to on this podcast have day jobs and they write you know in odd times or they teach or they you know they translate stuff to write full-time I think is now you either have to be a bit of a sellout or you have to get super lucky
1: yeah, I think that's pretty much it. There's no, n- nothing I would add or take away from that. Mm-hmm. But as long as people know that that's the case, uh, real writers, you never stop them anyway.
0: One thing I want to ask you more about this book is just your time, I guess, in London, because I feel like this this book, as you said before, I think the the experience of this book is experienced through your eyes. But that, uh, I guess, period in the UK, in you know the 60s, 70s, et cetera, uh, do you want to tell us about, a little bit about that period, because I don't know a lot about it, but also some of the music, because I feel like this book is just infused with like music and culture as well.
1: Mm. You would have to ask yourself what exactly was going on you know, in London in the 60s and 70s, because when you look back at it now, and it's so different to the current world, it does seem like something quite extraordinary was happening artistically. But, of course, it was happening in New York as well. And the only kind of ham-fisted analysis I can offer is that what really began in 1964-65 was the post-war British party that just took a while to get going you know (laughs) the 50s were austere there were you know rationing still going on but after 45 it took the British people maybe 10-15 years to get on their feet and um you know, the growth of the whole teenage phenomenon as, but I think what was significant for the seventies following on from the sixties was the proliferation of art colleges and the post, the the egalitarian post-war labor boom, you know, which allowed, you know, polytechs and uh, art schools and all the rest of it to flourish. And, you know, there was a, a great efflorescence of creativity because John Lennon and these guys are, I don't know, so many of those pop groups, they just drifted around art college wondering what what would they do, you know, and then common rooms and pubs and coffee houses and all the rest of it. They were cooking up all, all these ideas, and there was a great sense of possibility after the austerity of the 50s. And that uh, flowered in Ireland too, but not so much as it did in London because the metropolitan is always the centre of these. You know, you'll have outposts like rockabilly, people like... Uh, Johnny Cash or Carl Park went rural places, but by and large, in concentrates, they have to go to New York, and uh, the same as British bands, but have all ended up playing the, you know, the, the marquee or wherever the the, the venues were, you know, because you had to get the crowds there, and uh, then a the scene develops around that, the same as you had Laurel Canyon in the sixties in California, and people with similar ideas are not not actually not similar ideas. Colliding ideas, that's the difference between now and then. And out of that would come, you know, the Dillons, the Ginsbergs, and Britain, the Stones, but also in literature too. They had the whole early Picador phenomenon with the young Ian McEwan and Anna Kavan. And writers said, you know, you couldn't even dream of getting published now. I mean, who's ever even heard of Anna Kavan now? Mm. But there were were lots of people like that. And uh, it was a very cool thing. To be a college student with your album, your double, your gatefold album. Now, it's, it's, I know that it belongs to the realm of nostalgia now. You know, the picket or paperback and the crackpot ideas about free schooling and, you know, all the rest of it. Oh, most, most of which is a, a lot of human ideas come to very little. And the, the man that we were supposed to be toppling. Well, never did the man run the show more than the man does now. But that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, Hey Jude can't be written, or Ian McEwen's book, Love, First Love, Last Rights, which is pitched very much in that period, but is a timeless work, you know. And um, I suppose coming from a small um, urban, stroke, rural background, and knowing London from like my father was a great George Orwell fan, and I read a lot of Orwell, and it was very interesting. Now, Orwell, Orwell is very good on popular culture, you know, and mm. um, he's analyzed comic books and the penny postcard, and uh, he's even done analyses of Salvador Dali. So I always felt he was a curious English figure uh, that was reminiscent of a lot of the seemingly austere patriarchal figures of, of my childhood, although they're not English, they carried themselves in similar with this sports coat, you know, and the cavalry to twi- it, but were capable of extraordinarily rad- radical thought, left-wing kind of ideas and so on. So uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, one's style, when I went to London, all these things seemed to be there all in one place, plus the palimpsest kind of history of London, you know, I mean, it's an extraordinary mm-hmm. city-state London it, the fact that it still exists like in a, the end of an estuary on a, a relatively small island, you know, globally with this, that had a, an astonishing navy in this 15th, 16th century, I mean it's mind-blowing really when you think about it but what, mm-hmm. what was uh, exciting to me was that all, the, all these elements were available to me in a way that they wouldn't have been in the place I grew up. It wasn't that the place I grew up was bereft in any way. It had different things. But the things that I wanted at that time were like a big giant sweet shop called London.
0: <laughs> I think that that whole idea of Irish immigration as well that you feature in this book is just such a rich part of not only, you know, English culture, but cultures like Australia as well. Like my mum came out here, you know, in 1960, I think she had brothers and sisters who both they both moved to London in the in the 60s as well um, people who went over to the the U.S. as well I think in this book I think you just captured this idea so beautifully
1: people are always moving aren't they I mean now there's different kind of emigration there's a lot of immigration in Ireland mm. which was interesting a, a lot of people from all over the world coming to live here so people are always I mean Someone said to me, where do you think these big medieval churches came from? People used to come and they'd spend maybe a hundred years, their families, generation, and then move on again. You know, the globalization one form or another, all ex- always existed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's always exciting. But uh, it, it's kind of, it's not something I would be able to chronicle. Yet. I'd be kind of out of time, really. You know, yeah. you only have a feel for your own world, I suppose, you know. Mm. I mean, I couldn't really, I'm not on social media or anything. I don't feel I belong. Yeah. I like to use it occasionally, but I wouldn't engage in any of the discourse on it because I just wouldn't feel part of it, I suppose.
0: Mm. Well, speaking of that, are you currently working on a book at the moment?
1: Well, as I say, it's one book, you know, Ben, and uh, I'm always kind of scribbling at something because I like the idea that, as again, that scratch of the, And I still write longhand, which literally astonishes occasionally when I do creative writing Mm -hmm. courses with people, these university graduates. They just cannot believe that you would use a fountain pen. And I can understand why they wouldn't understand that. But um, for me, it's almost connected to the bloodstream, you know, that when the scratching of the nib on the pen, begins it kind of is, it's connected to your nervous system and if it ain't broke don't fix it so while I have any amount of computers and so on I don't really use them except for editing and typing up the manuscript but the act of writing mm. is what gives me a kind of not so much pleasure as a sense of belonging belonging to your own sanctuary I suppose.
0: With that I wanted to ask you briefly just about your work with your publisher because Unbound. They are a publisher. I didn't know about them until this book, but they crowdsource their books, which I think is an amazing thing to do. But in terms of publishing, is that the kind of road you think you'll go down for your next book?
1: Well, I have a feeling that I I won't be the only one because uh, the person who, who contributes to this book and who's a salesman, actually, he's not in publishing, but he was asking me about it, and he said, "This sounds very much to me like the future, you know." Mm. And he was thinking solely in terms of commerce as it pertains to the artistic world in general, you know. And he he reads enough to know that if a book isn't instantly kind of appealing to a, a gateway editor, that that it doesn't have much chance. But what he did point out is that people like to take ownership of a thing as well, you know, and one of the questions that I had asked various people who read, um, <clears throat> how do you feel about this? You know, what do you think about the idea of unbalanced? Well, why not give it to someone, you know, whose, whose heart is in the right place instead of giving it to an, a, a massive conglomerate, you know, who don't give a mm. damn about anything. And <clears throat> what my experience had been is that it's almost like, while it's the future, there's still an element of the underground about it, which is, it's always joy joyous when I hear it because almost when you I'm sixty seven as I say, but it's almost like I'm getting more dissident as I get older <laughs> because the world has become very conservative and um mm. uh, I don't know if I'm necessarily a conservative type of person you know I like imagination I like you know um risk taking and so on but. But if I'm unbound is anything, it's a risk, but it's a calculated risk because John Mitchison has huge experience in terms of uh, business. I don't go to run around, kind of waving manuscripts saying we don't care if we get paid. We're nuts like Apple or something. No, I'd like to, you know, like the scaffolding in the books that I'm talking. about, you have to have a structure. Mm-hmm. But basically, what it what it succeeds beyond everyone, else is that literature is at its heart because. It had got to the stage where I was dealing with people. I was beginning to wonder, did they have any interest in literature at all? Because when I'd mentioned something like we're talking about, their eyes would glaze over. Yeah. And that I found very dispiriting, but that doesn't happen now.
0: Well, can I ask with that? I feel like that it sounds like this book, it feels extremely fresh, but did, did this book have a long gestation? Like did this book take quite a while to, to get out into the world?
1: Well, the, the the curious thing about anything I do, any humble effort I would throw out into the world, I could say to you, I wrote this in two two years, and that would Mm -hmm. be minimum, but I could say that, but it wouldn't be true because I would go through the book and I'll find something, a sentence in there, and if I rummage through all these boxes of old rubbish papers and manuscripts that I have, I'll find a sentence that I've just quoted to you that I wrote 25 years ago.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So again, getting back to the idea Of all the books being one book, all I can really say is it took me 50 years to write it. That's the truth. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, and and it's pure form.
0: If we are going to see a new book from you, is that something that's on the cards soon or is it down the track a bit?
1: Well, I mean, one has to kind of wait and see how this book has landed, you know, Mm. Um. I mean, I would like to think that the... I I, I don't see any point in um, writing ad infinitum un, unless people are interested. You know, I would mm. write all right, but whether of our publishing, I mean, um, I would always write, but I wouldn't like to feel that I'm at odds with people. You know, I, I like things to be, you know, to, re, to be received. And I went to see a movie there recently which seems to me to hit all the... Buttons or press all the buttons, called The Banshees of Inish Aaron by Martin McDonough. and it almost does everything that you would want literature and cinema to do. You know, it has an operatic feel, and it's hugely popular. You know, it's going to be a stormer at the Oscars, I think. But it has really landed in Ireland and England, and it really landed with me because, you know, that really kind restores your faith, because everything that I admire about art is in it.
0: Mm.
1: so there must be an audience for this kind of and it's very much written in um that hiberno english i'm talking about and it's very authentic in a fairy tale way in that sense it's like go-go you know and i love that and i'd love to so if there's the audience is there for martin i'd like to think maybe in yeah i'd love to go on publishing books if i could you know feel that people wanted them
0: brilliant Okay well I'm sure after reading this I yeah I I will certainly go out and buy anything that I can get my hands on from you so yes and I hope anything that comes out in the future I'll be able to purchase nice and easily and yeah get everywhere.
1: I certainly do everything to facilitate that ban believe me.
0: What were some of the gateway books what were some of the books that opened the world of literature for you?
1: I suppose the two books that I used to, were well, three books that I used to like when I really became serious. I was always a reader, but as a kid, you know, it'd be the usual Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew and mm-hmm. uh, Enid Blyton, Richmond Crompton, all the mythology sagas, all that. But when I really began to kind of, about 16 or 17, think that literature was kind of like rebellion and uh, excitement and circus and, uh, like religion as well. You know, um, I I love Borstel Boy by Brendan Behan. Yeah. Ian McEwan's in be- uh, First Love, Last Rites, which was like a Bible to me. And uh, The Ginger Man by J.P. Levy. Now, The Ginger Man probably seems really tame now. It's about a guy knocking around 50s pubs in Dublin called Sebastian Dangerfield. He's a a GI who was over there on some kind of educational program but spends most of his time chasing women and he'd probably be cancelled now actually <laughs> uh, now that I think of it but he's chasing women around up in the pubs of Dublin and uh, the language is actually now it's stolen from a guy called Joyce Carey who was writing in the 40s and 50s which is stop start present participle kind of writing but it's it, it's full of cheek and it's anti-clerical and as I say probably funny but the style of it really interested me and I, I used to kind of read it in snatches, and, you know, quote lumps of it in pubs and things like that. So it was Warsaw Boy and The Ginger Man. But this, the, the, the most powerful story that I'd read outside Joyce was Ian McEwan's Last Day of Summer, mm. which is a big influence on in Pogue Mahone. Uh, it might, be, might not be overt, but uh, if you read Pogue Mahone and it at the same time, you'd say, yeah, I can see where that comes from. All right. Okay. So I will definitely bring that one.
0: Very good. Okay. Can I ask you, what books are you reading at the moment? What are you liking currently?
1: I'm reading a magnificent collection of poetry by Clive James. Clive James is,
0: he is, well, he was a national treasure, but he is um, somebody who is writing his thoughts on literature, his essays, like the articles he used to write. Unbelievable. He's just, yeah. Yeah, he's yeah, a well, good and than
1: all as they are. Mm-hmm. And I know his oeuvre is second to none. Yeah. Sentence to life, this collection of poems is the equal of Philip Larkin. And believe me, wow. I don't say that lightly. Wow. Larkin is one of my favourite writers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Clive James is in the first rank of poets after this. It's only it's a very small, slim collection.
0: It's his last and book, isn't
1: it? Yes, it is. And uh, it's very interesting in that he court-martials himself, as it were, and his mm-hmm. former life, and, and many things he regrets. Well, we all regret things, and we court marvellous, but this is very sincere. It's it's very, very uh, beautiful. It's repentant, and I don't go that much on repentance, but if that's the way he wants to go, it's all right with me. Uh, it's It could say to Philip Larkin, who is on record as saying, death is the same whined at or withstood. Clive James might be within his rights to say, no, no, no. What stood is more graceful.
0: His work towards the end of his life was just unbelievable. Just breathtaking work.
1: I agree. Mm. Unbelievable. I've been recommending this book to everybody.
0: Yeah. Yes. I've got a copy and it is, it's just a stunning book. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond Zero. We're speaking with Patrick McCabe. Do you have a friend who has everything and runs a human rights abusing regime and you can't work out what to get them for Christmas? Why not try getting them sports washing? Guaranteed to make your regime at least 50% more palatable. Use promo code BRABVIVA to get your next sporting event for 50% off. Go to sportswashing.com We're back on Beyond Zero. It's time for Patrick's Desert Island Books.
1: I'm so cliched on this one. <laughs> I bring the Bible... Ulysses and either high either High Windows or sentenced to life by Clive James. High Windows being Philip Larkin.
0: Sounds like a good Desert Island, really.
1: I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but that's 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 the most truthful answer I can give you. Now there's plenty of other desert island selections we could. But the Bible I will, Shakespeare could we bring him to. So okay. very traditional
0: the whole Shakespeare, everything? The whole lot. Thank you so much for joining me, Patrick. It has been a pleasure speaking with you.
1: Thank you very much, Ben.
0: Thank you so much for writing Pogma It's an absolute pleasure to read. I urge everybody to go out and buy this book. It's just unbelievable. You won't regret it, trust me.
1: Thanks very much. Ben.
0: Thanks once again to Patrick McCabe. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod, and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. You can support this podcast by heading over to patreon.com and searching for Beyond the Zero. We'll be back with the next episode very soon.